This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The mayor of Trent Hills is speaking out against Ontario's Minister of Health, saying he has been, quote, essentially murdered by a corrupt, rigged political system. Uh, This is an article that's uh, in the Toronto Sun today. Joe Warmington has penned this. It is entitled, I've been sentenced to die. Cancer-stricken Ontario mayor, mad as heck at Wynne and Hoskins. Uh, The first uh, paragraph of this article by Joe Warmington says, Fearing he will soon die without pancreatic cancer surgery, the longtime mayor of Trent Hills says he's been, quote, essentially murdered by a corrupt, rigged political system and wants the OPP to investigate health and long, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Uh, It's not only got the public's attention, but also has shaken up the Minister of Health office as well. To talk more about all of this, the mayor of Trent Hills, Hector McMillan, he is with us now. Hello, Hector. Hector, how are you today? Well, other than I've been sentenced to die, I'm, I'm doing okay. How are you feeling? What is your condition now? Right now, I'm leading a fairly normal lifestyle. I mean, I mean, as normal for me as that can be. I'm doing okay. Tell us your story. Tell us how this all started. What happened? Well, it's a long story, but to... to, to That's okay. We, case, got, we got time. Take your time. I, I, I started uh, a year ago having some, some pain in my back, and I wrote it off to... Um, uh, falling asleep on the couch too many times watching the news. I'm a bit of a news junkie. Mm-hmm. And um, it uh, it continued on for a few weeks. Uh, and when it got longer than I had expected to last, um, I noticed that it was distinctively much worse 20 to 30 minutes after eating. Mm. So I just Googled back pain after eating, and every site that came up said pancreatitis. So I made an appointment and uh, eventually had a CT scan and blood work, and yes, I had pancreatitis. However, they also saw a shadow. So after a couple of more CTs, I had three of them in 10 days' time. They said that they believed I had a tumor, and uh, ultimately they found three lymph nodes in my upper left chest that were also cancerous. Um, they finally gave me the, the, the final verdict after doing uh, endoscopy uh, biopsies uh, on January the 4th and said that uh, previously they were willing to uh, give me surgery uh, with the assumption that I could shrink the tumor with uh, chemotherapy. And uh, I could no longer have radiation because I beat esophageal cancer five years ago. And I didn't know there was a lifetime supply of radiation they would give you, but apparently there is. And I had used it. Um, so... After several chemotherapy treatments, I did manage to get the tumor shrunk down. And uh, although the, the chemotherapy just about wiped me out, um, my my long life best friend, uh, I refer to him, we refer to each other as brothers, is a two-time world champion, now retired Olympic, or not, um, not Olympic, but uh, a world champion diver at the cliff in Acapulco. And uh, I had to see him one, one more time. So uh, my sons had to push me through Pearson and Acapulco airports in a wheelchair to uh, to get me there. And it would not have surprised me at the time if I'd come home in a jar. However, I went. And uh, he told me of uh, a local elixir that he had taken successfully to rid himself of the Zika virus. And uh, through the testimonials of many Acapulquinos, uh, we found the guy that made it, and uh, he asked me if I had cancer anywhere else, in Spanish, of course, and I pointed to the three lymph nodes on my chest, and he tapped me on the chest. He actually poked me. He said, those are gone. 
those are gone right now. Forget you ever even had them. And he opened up a smaller bottle of this elixir, poured it into a small glass, and said, drink it. I took a, a quick sniff of it, and he said, I didn't say smell it. He said, I said, drink it. Well, I threw about half of it back, and it just about made me gag. He said, throw it back. So I did. Well, I had thrown away my airline tickets, return air tickets, because we were on this long search to find this stuff. And um, when I came home from Acapulco, I was walking two to three kilometers a day in the city, all throughout the city. I have a lot of friends in Acapulco, and I was able to visit most of them by walking to their homes and to their businesses. So upon upon the return and eventually running out of... Out of uh, this uh, elixir that I bought there, I started purchasing locally here, Noni. It's, uh, I believe, made in, in Brampton by uh, Marinda. And uh, it doesn't have the extra 11 extracts that this gentleman blends in his Noni in Acapulco, but um, uh, it does contain 15% blueberry and grape juice, which makes it very palatable. There's no problem drinking it. So I drink lots of that. In fact, I just got two cases of it today. Um, I drink that, and um, uh, through research and, and through the uh, uh, advice of one doctor in Toronto, uh, I was I was steered towards a Dr. Robert Martin in Kentucky, and uh, he's part of the Louisville um, State Health Network down there, um, Kentucky One, Kentucky First, I believe it's called, and uh, I visited him. And he said, I am a definite candidate for IRE nano knife surgery. And this was on a Friday. And he said, you want that tumor out? We can have it out for you as soon as Wednesday. I said, what's the prognosis? He said, five, seven plus years. Hmm. Well, I'm in for that. That as opposed to Christmas. I'll take that every time. But by the time you pay the hospital, the hospital stay, and, and it's all an a la carte process, um, it's, uh, it's about 320000 Canadian dollars. Hmm. His, his portion of it was, was small, but by the time you pay the hospital and everything else, it was, they said be prepared to spend upwards of 250 U.S. Well, there's lots of appointments inside this story that I haven't mentioned. And um, one of them is we have a nano knife machine sitting collecting dirt in Toronto at the University Health Network. They've been writing the protocols for this use of this machine for the last eight months. They haven't used it yet for pancreatic cancer surgery, and I can't even find out if it's going to be in the future, but they must be writing the protocols for its use for something. What what are they going to use it for? Well, that's a good question. Apparently, they've used it up as many as 15 times for doing very small work, mostly in the liver, is what I understand. The good news is I got sent in for another PET scan in Ottawa, where I'd had my previous one over five years ago. So they compared the one to the other and to the CT scans. Lo and behold, I no longer have three cancerous lymph nodes in my chest which technically puts me back into the Ontario standard of care that we all live under, that many or most people don't know about. The Ontario standard of care, basically what it does is it limits to what they're going to spend on you before they write you off. If you've got pancreatic cancer and it's in the body of the, of the 
the, uh, the pancreas rather than in the head where you can get a Whipple procedure, you're a goner. They just write you off. The only thing they'll give you is palliative chemo. And if, the, if the tumor doesn't kill you, the chemo will. Hmm. So I'm technically now down to a stage three. Dr. Martin is a world pioneer performing IRE nano knife surgery. He's an awesome doc. He's an awesome person. Um, according to Angiodynamics in Albany, New York, who manufactures the nano knife machine, he performs more IR, successful IRE surgeries than any, any other surgeon in the world. There's over 250 hospitals around the world and counting that are using these machines, 50 of them in the United States alone. The only reason it's experimental in Ontario is because we're not using it here, because they won't, don't want to pay for it, or they haven't picked up the program yet, yet, or they haven't written the protocols yet, or whatever any other excuse they want to come up with. But in the meantime, pancreatic cancer patients are dying just trying to get through the labyrinth of bureaucratic paperwork, not only to apply for out-of-country funding, but now trying to mount an appeal, I need an appeal number. I requested that several days ago by email. I've made several phone calls and left messages wanting to know that they'd received my email and that I needed my file number, none of which were returned. Today, I finally reached someone at the office, and they told me that they had no record of my email, hmm. uh, no record of any phone calls. Eventually, they found my, my, my email and said that it had not been assigned to anyone yet, and nor had it been assigned a number, and that could take up to two to three weeks to get the number. In the meantime, you can't send in your appeal until you have been assigned a number. And the clock is ticking, and it's starting to sound like a night football game. It's so loud. And the minister's never got back to me since I asked him the question at the recent AMO conference a week ago Tuesday in, in Windsor. He said he would check to see if all the procedures and protocols have been followed correctly for the letter of denial that I had received, and that politically he could not influence that decision. And this morning I was sent documentation that he does have the authority, and that ministers since October 1st, 1991, have exercised that authority and have ordered OHIP to pay for out-of-country health services, even, even though a patient may have been denied. Uh, could this machine that's in Toronto uh, collecting dust, as you put it, uh, could this save you? Could Is there somebody here qualified to do this? I don't believe, that. at least I'm not aware of, that there's anyone here yet who has the training or the expertise. Certainly not the expertise that Dr. Martin has. And one of the things I hope that the board will take under consideration when I do make my appeal is that I'm willing to pay if Dr. Martin agrees if he would come to Toronto and use our nano knife machine that's sitting in our hospital in Toronto, and I'll be the guinea pig, and he could perform the surgery here and at the same time demonstrate it to our surgeons here so that we can start to get this program going. And I realize Dr. Martin would have to have passed the, uh, the process of getting privileges to, to use the hospital, but I'm sure those are all small things that could be expedited if Dr. Martin was willing, and if the University Health Network was willing. And I have put in the request to Dr. Martin to consider through his staff as of yesterday. Hmm. Any response on that? 
not yet. I didn't expect it to happen overnight. He wasn't in the office. So uh, he will get back to me, though. That's one thing I don't have any trouble getting is, is a response from his office. They're just wonderful people. And at the same time, I also checked on the waiting list. She said, the answer's still the same. We can have that out in three to four days. Hmm. Uh, so the issue with the government paying it is that they said you're at stage four, you're now back to stage three, therefore this they, they should be paying for this, or do, would they normally pay for this at a stage three situation? No, they still won't perform it or pay for out-of-country surgery because one box on the application form has been checked off that it's considered to be an experimental procedure in Ontario. Well, of course it is in Ontario. It's because we haven't learned how to do it yet. But it's not experimental globally. Dr. Martin's been doing it since 2008. What does... uh, So you have contacted the ministry and tried to get them to pay for this in Kentucky, correct? I, I, I filed a formal application, just the same as anyone else would. And I also received a letter of denial. And you said you actually spoke to uh, Minister Hoskins. I spoke to him at the AMO conference in front of some 1,900 municipal delegates at what we call the Bear Pit. It's the minister's forum where there's most of the provincial cabinet are on stage and willing to take a question and attempt to make an answer. And I asked the question on behalf of all Ontarians using my voice because I had an opportunity that most Ontarians wouldn't get where I could put the minister on the spot and that, ask him. And that being because you're a mayor. Correct. Yeah. Let's face it, there's, 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 there's uh, privileges that, and opportunities that, that local politicians have come up from time to time, and, and I use that to the best advantage to, to help everyone, mm-hmm. whether it's looking for money for infrastructure or health care or whatever the current municipal issue is and for me to find out about the standard of care and when you look at the statistics and find out how many numbers of successful applicants have been refused um, when I say successful I mean applications that have been refused in the last four years compared to what they used to grant and how many appeals are now being granted compared to what they used to be granted. They've, they've made the application so that the, the patient is, is destined to fail uh, the minute that he sends the forms in. Hmm. So what did you say to the minister that day? What was his response? Well, you can find that video online. What I said to him was, why would you be sentencing Ontarians to die when there are alternatives, why won't you pay for it? And his response was that it's not a political decision, it's up to Ontario experts to make that decision. Well, if that's true, our Ontario experts are a bunch of quacks, because there are alternatives out there, and people need to know that. There are alternatives out there, if you can afford them, because the province is very limited in what they'll pay for. What's next for you as you move through this battle? What's well, next for I'm, you? I, I'm, I'm waiting for my, my, my file number 
so that I can make an appeal to the board. And at that time, I've, I've requested an oral hearing, and I will present my case. And I'll and I will also, because of my knowledge of politics, I will also present some solutions for them to consider. And at this time, I'm I'm not overly optimistic of a of a, a positive answer, but I'm hopeful. In the meantime, there's been a a GoFundMe page set up here locally in Campbellford. And uh, as of this morning, they've, they've also set up a, a trust account uh, that requires uh, two signatures, and I'm not one of them. Um, and uh, it, that's been set up at TD Bank. And, and people are... I'm so humbled. People from all over Canada are donating that I can get the surgery. And the minute I've got the money, I'll be on a flight or in my car to Kentucky so fast and I'll have the surgery. And Dr. Martin has assured me because I'm in really good condition currently, he's assured me of at least five, seven plus years. He said, I can't tell you any longer than that because I've, it's only been out for eight years. He said, but right now, he says, I can give you the maximum. Hector, what do you want Ontarians to take away from this? What do you want them to know about health care in this province? Well, we all think we have the best health care, as I did. And I've done, a, I've done a lot of work on behalf of my own municipality, as of our county, and even Ontarians, to support our local hospital, and I will always continue to support our local hospital, and our doctors, and our emergency ward. I will always support our health care, but I've also found out now that it needs all of our help more than I ever thought. People need to be aware of the standard of care that we live under and the limitations of it, and they also need to know that there is help it might not be in Ontario, but there's help out there. And there's alternatives. And don't ever take no for an answer. Challenge your doctor. Challenge these experts. My father died while in office when he was mayor of the town of Campbellford long before amalgamation. He died of pseudomembranous colitis back in 1990. At that time... It was relatively unknown, not only in Ontario, but in Canada. Today we call it C. diff. And one of the things that we did was we ensured that the hospitals made sure that it was written up in the medical journals so that all Canadian doctors would know about it. And you've seen the things that hospitals had to do to protect us from C. diff today. He was one of the first Hector McMillan has been with us. He is the mayor for Trent Hills. There's an article in the Toronto Sun today, uh, penned by Joe Warmington, you should take a peek at. I've been sentenced to die. Uh, Cancer-stricken Ontario mayor, mad as heck at Wynn and Hoskins, as Hector McMillan, the mayor of Trent Hills, tries to get someone to pay 
for his life-saving pancreatic cancer surgery, which he believes is the solution in Kentucky. Hector, thank you very much for sharing your story uh, and the courage it takes to do so. I'm sure you have helped others uh, by telling this story. Hector, keep in touch and good luck to you. Thank you so much. If you need our help in any way, let us know, please. God bless you. Thank you, Hector. Good luck to you and know that we're behind you know that you have supporters out there. Thank you for telling your story to us. Thank you. Hector McMillan is the mayor for Trent Hills. Uh, go to the uh, Sun website or uh, uh, grab yourself a paper. I've, I've been sentenced to die, cancer-stricken Ontario mayor, mad as heck at Wynn and Hoskins. Uh, this is the battle for mayor of Trent Hills, Hector McMillan. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, we were talking about the 6.2 magnitude earthquake that struck central Italy, has killed at least 247 people. Uh, the president of the National Federation of Canadian Italian Business and Professional Association says that while it's early, his organization is looking for ways to help the cause. To talk more about all of this, Bob Sacco is with us, president of the National Federation of Canadian Italian Business and Professional Association and is on the line with us now. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Very well, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. First of all, tell us what the National Federation of Canadian Italian Business and Professional Association is all about. Well, originally started in uh, in uh, 1949 in Montreal and followed up by uh, another chapter in uh, in Toronto. And basically, we uh, are a professional uh, business association that. Uh, uh, tries to represent the interest of Italian Canadians uh, with respect to uh, uh, networking and our signature uh, uh, provision of services is actually education uh, uh, bursaries uh, and scholarships for students and I think we're about four million dollars that we've actually distributed to Italian heritage students mm. uh, over the course of our uh, our career. Bob, have you talked to anybody in the region or, or made any contact uh, whatsoever? Uh, at this stage, there's just so much going on. Uh, yeah. you know, trying to make contact probably just adds to uh, to the complexity of the system. But what we've what we've done uh, is, and unfortunately, we've had some experience with this with the Abruzzo earthquake yep. uh, in 2009 and and the uh, Molinese earthquake in 2002. Uh, is we started to array, uh, to uh, uh, canvas various associations, and, and including. Uh, the National Congress, Villa Charities, IC Savings, the Italian Chamber of Commerce, and all other interested parties or patrons to get together to uh, organize uh, a particular trust fund to solicit uh, funds and have fundraising uh, uh, activities. Um, historically, we've been very successful for the Abruzzo earthquake relief. We decided that the biggest uh, way we could help was to help the University of L'Aquila, which uh, hmm. Uh, was you know at the uh, at the epicenter of the uh, uh, of the earthquake, uh, and so we managed to raise uh, 2.5 million dollars for a research center for medical uh, uh, diagnosis uh, diagnosis and advanced therapies. And in uh, uh, in March of 2013, they actually uh, opened it up, and uh, uh, it was a, quite an event. Uh, and uh, uh, an ongoing activity now that that will help the community long past uh, uh, you know the actual uh, 
contributions. You were talking about uh, the past quakes and what your organizations have done to, to help in the past. How are those areas doing now at Rebuilding? I think they're a lot uh, better. Of course, there's always some residual issues about some of the projects. We just wanted to really make sure uh, that the uh, the funds were actually uh, spent uh, where they they should have been, uh, and uh, we managed to hire some professional consultants uh, actually in Italy that they were engineers, because uh, you know purchasing complex machinery and equipment for healthcare around the world, making sure they get delivered, get connected, and actually work and and have the manufacturer's warranty was was quite a logistical feat. Uh, and so we also had to make a commitment uh, or get a commitment for the for the city and the uh, and the university that they would in fact make the space available and support the facility on an ongoing basis after that. So it was a lot of negotiations, uh, a lot of dotting I's and crossing T's. But at the end of the day, we we protected the funds that we uh, gathered and made sure they went to the right place uh, and uh, and actually got uh, got used and. Uh, we're quite pleased with that. Obviously, this isn't uncommon uh, in this part of the world. How is Italy reacting to this? Well, uh, I think Prime Minister Renzi uh, has already said that they're going to marshal all the resources they can to uh, to help the affected area. The shame is that you know you have thousands of years of yeah. architecture and culture and everything else, and and uh, and the loss of life is just you know so significant. Uh, uh, the only thing we can do is is actually uh, do like we've always done, and and that's start rebuilding and uh, and making the community whole again. Uh, we've heard reports in some situations, seventy five percent of of towns and developments in areas like this ha- have simply been leveled. Uh, how much rebuilding can be done to match what was once there? Obviously, as you talked about, the architecture there is is breathtaking and and, and extremely old. Uh, how concerned are you about replicating that? Well, uh, it, it, it's not uh, the, uh, the the Italian diaspora around the world is is significant. I think there's something around 30 million, um, and so. You know, we have the Canadian initiative, and, and then our counterparts in the United States, the uh, National Italian uh, Foundation of America, NIAF, uh, is, is also uh, soliciting funds. For Abruzzo Earthquake Relief, they, they actually uh, uh, provided a scholarship for students in some of the best universities in, uh, in the United States while they were doing the rebuilding. So it's not something that we're going to be able to resolve uh, piecemeal, but uh, with good intentions and, and the community overall, uh, we'll try to do our best to do our part. And, and uh, the Italian government, I'm sure, is going to do the same. And, and then the people and the neighbors will always be there to help uh, as well. To those who've never been to this uh, to Italy or this part of the world, tell us about life there. What's life like in central Italy? Well, it's actually spectacular. Uh, I was born there but came over very young, and it was in the mid, uh, around 2004 when I actually went back to see family. And uh, um, that particular part of the world has some of the largest uh, natural parklands and uh, um, uh, protected areas for biking and hiking and all kinds of things. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the smaller communities... Uh, have generations after generations of people living hmm. uh, together, uh, extended families and such. So it, it really is a little bit of the new world and the old world. 
How concerned are people on a day-to-day basis in this part of the world about this sort of thing? I think, uh, you know, uh, every day, uh, 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 I, I guess, you, you know, you, you, could, you could step off the, the street and get hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. So uh, natural disasters are things that have happened. There's no, there's no rationale as to why. Uh, the only thing is, uh, you know, God willing, that you uh, help rebuild and help those that uh, are the most in need uh, try to get back to uh, having some semblance of a normal life. And how are you and what are you looking to do to raise funds for this part of the world? Well, again, if we, if we mirror what we did for the Abruzzo earthquake relief, we had uh, some of our key patrons, uh, Sergio Marchioni, uh, the CEO of uh, Fiat, uh, uh, had a, was the chair of a dinner that raised $600,000. We had uh, uh, walks uh, to generate uh, funds for... Uh, um, for, for the Abruzzo earthquake relief. We had the uh, uh, Catholic school boards in Toronto uh, contribute toonies for, uh, for Abruzzo, and lots of small events. Uh, no, no amount is too small. Uh, trying to organize the trust fund so that everything can go in one place. Uh, and we decided uh, for that one, and I think hopefully we'll do the same for this one, is to pick something that the entire community can uh, can benefit from. Uh, mm. For example, you mentioned, you know, rebuilding. Uh, you know, there's not enough funds that can go to rebuild these churches and such, so we need to pick something that will benefit the community overall, something the community can support after on an ongoing basis, uh, and that everyone benefits so that we're not uh, there having to pick and choose uh, those kinds of things. That's not really our role, or not a role we want to be in the, the center of, uh, is picking uh, you know, How will you decide? Because obviously it sounds like you, your organization wants to go in and make a mark on the community and do something right at, at ground zero, per se, you know, as opposed to donating funds to, say, a Red Cross or one of those organizations. How do you decide where the money goes? Well, that's, that's what the committee uh, comes together. And, and we ask the community, we ask the leaders in those communities, where do they see things? Uh, you know, do they need more hospitals? Uh, uh, I, there was uh, some great, uh, great people that came together for for the uh, Butso earthquake relief, and uh, and there's all kinds of c- complexities that go with it. W- Walter Arbib uh, has an airline and managed to purchase, I think, something like seven hundred thousand dollars of medical supplies from Switzerland to deliver to the local hospitals and such as part of. Uh, this canvassing. So we asked what did they need. They gave us uh, the information they needed. Now, you can't just buy that stuff from Canada and drop it into uh, into Europe. Hmm. There are all kinds of rules and regulations and governments and, and, and so on. So we had to make sure that where we bought them within the EU was, was going to be allowed uh, and those kinds of things. But uh, I was really uh, proud of the uh, the support that they gave and and uh, the key people that came together then I'm hoping will come together again if people want to help out or and do so through your organization how, how do we do that what do we do well I think if you just go to cibpa.com and just let us know your uh, 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 how you'd like to help uh, we in the next uh, uh, a few days uh, or actually tomorrow afternoon are actually meeting to uh, determine the uh, the committee the 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 bank uh, arrangements and all of those things. And what I could do is I could loop back with you and, and give you the actual site address and everything else if, uh, if, 
if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. All right, Bob Sacco has been with us, president of the National Federation of Canadian Business, Canadian Italian Business and Professional Association, doing what they can to rally the troops and, of course, uh, help out Italy as much as possible. And, of course, yesterday, a 6.2 magnitude earthquake striking central Italy, uh, killing at least 247 people and leveling towns in its path. Bob, thank you very much for the time and insight. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Poll question of the day. Getting lots of action today. Will larger speed limit signs on the Lincoln Red Hill make drivers slow down? What is the problem with photo radar? Why do people not like photo radar? You know, like we've got um, red light cameras. How, is, how are red light cameras any different than photo radar? You know, it's, I don't know. The government needs money. So the best way, I think, for the government to get money is to hit the people that are breaking the law. Not me. Doesn't that make sense to you? Unless, what, are you, are you like a chronic speeder? Are you a chronic red light runner? But, it, you know, it, 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 in, you know we're, we're tolling. We, we, we spent all this money. We spent like $800 million dollars putting an extra lane between Hamilton and Oakville on the QEW. Uh, We spent almost a billion dollars expanding that highway, only to rope it off for only people who are traveling with their families in minivans in the form of an HOV lane. Because I'm not sure how how much carpooling has increased since they brought in HOV lanes. And that was the whole idea behind it, was to get you into carpooling, was to... Uh, of course, help the environment. It's all about the environment. It's all about the environment for Kathleen Wynne's granddaughter. So, you know, they've been trucking along for the last couple of years. Now they realized, well, maybe they knew this all along. They're going to give us something, then they're going to take it away from us, and then they're going to charge us to use it again. And that's really what's happened. So the HOV lanes have now turned in from, have gone from an environmentally green initiative to something that generates revenue for the government. So they take one lane away from you and then charge you to use it. So they can make more money. By the way, did, did you sign up for one of those HOT permits? Because apparently they're so, so in, in such high demand they have to hold a lottery. And that ended that, this week. But I don't know anybody that's, that's purchased an HOT permit. But, you know, instead of doing stupid things like this, why not just have photo radar and make everybody safe? The only argument I've heard, well, you know, you can't, what if the driver's not the same as the car? Who the frig cares? Grow up. So what? They get taken down too. How many of those people are there out there? Are you serious? So that's the reason not to do this? It's a cash grab. It's a cash grab. Well, so is your God... Oops, I almost swore. So is your hydro bill. It's a cash grab. Have you looked at it lately? Yet you, see, you keep voting the party in that, that brought it to you. So how is photo radar a cash grab, yet your hydro bill isn't a cash grab? How is photo radar a cash grab, but red light cameras aren't a cash grab? How is photo radar a cash grab, but your smart meter isn't? How is photo radar a cash grab? I mean, but the gas plants aren't. Like, 
how many more examples do we need of cash grabs in this province? But for some reason, we're stuck on photo radar? That's the, that's the most legitimate of all of these cash grabs. It's the one that, that at least has a positive outcome. You're charging the people who are breaking the law. The only thing better than that is charging the politicians that make up these rules. So I don't get it. So And how much is it going to cost us to increase the size of the signs? This is a make-work project, man. How much is it going to cost us to increase the size of the signs on the Red Hill and the Link? Are you kidding me? You're going to put bigger signs, but you're against... You're, you're going to put bigger signs up, but you're against photo radar. Does that make any sense to you? Do you honestly think that bigger signs on the roadway... Oh, man! Martha! I had no idea! The speed limit on the Red Hill's only 90! I had no idea! When did that happen? Did they just lower it? And yet you don't want photo radar. Duh. Duh. I think that's the dumbest thing. They're taking lanes away from you and charging you for using lanes that you've already paid for. Yet you don't want them using photo radar? You don't want them charging the people that are running 140K down the road? Really? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Matter of fact, I think it's stupid. We're going to increase the size of signs to slow, to slow the traffic down. And we're going to charge people for HOV lanes to raise money. Here's an idea. Give me all my damn lanes back and put up photo radar to raise your money. Give me all my lanes back. Put up your photo radar to raise money. Because the highways are too congested for the HOV lanes to even work anyway. Too little, too late, people. You should have thought of that during the McGinty era. You should have kept building during the McGinty era instead of spending the dough on your, on your votes. Like, really? HOV lanes? HOT lanes to raise money instead of photo radar? I, I, I guess people might be saying, keep your mouth shut, Scott. They'll, they'll do this. All right, we got a line, uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, sure, we'll take some calls here. Why not? Esther, Esther, what are your thoughts on all of this? Do you think the bigger speed limit signs are going to make a, a dent? No, I think it's ridiculous as well. I totally agree with you, and, I, and I'm on board with the photo radar as well. Do you think, uh, so you're not against photo radar? No, I absolutely agree. I, I'm talking about... Uh, hearing it with Europe and how it's done it in the Netherlands for many years. They looked at um, photo radar and how people just slow down for the photo radar. But now what they're doing is they're tracking once your car is scanned at a certain exit, how much time did it take you to get to the end of the highway? And wow. if it took too much time, that means you're going to get an automatic ticket. Wow. <laughs> so that's the way to do it. Not, finally, they're having success in Europe with speeders. Uh, technology at work. All right. Thanks for the call, Esther. Much appreciated. No 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As you've heard, uh, July figures from the city of Hamilton's building uh, building permits uh, shows that 738 burn, uh, building permits were issued for construction. Uh, is the market for building in the city slowing down, or is this just sign of uh, what is going on in the market? Talk more about all of this. Suzanne Mammel is with us, executive officer with the Hamilton Halton Home Builders Association, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Suzanne. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So what is the condition of the market? How do you explain the building permits? Uh, Is this just one of those blips on the screen? I would say it's a blip on the screen. Uh, A lot of times in summer this happens. Uh, People are on vacation. They're on, uh, you know, they're they're taking time off to do whatever they they want. And so we sometimes see this happen in the summer. Uh, But our members are saying, nope, they don't see any sort of a slowdown whatsoever. Uh, Demand is high, uh, sort of across the board, regardless of the the type of unit. Has it been a slow, steady increase for the last couple of years? Uh, How has it been? Well, I think we all know that Hamilton has been a pretty hot market the Mm -hmm. last couple of years. Uh, You know, we've had uh, prices have increased, what, 10 to 12 percent year over year. Uh, for the last couple of years, and that's really um, a sign of um, uh, housing affordability, people moving uh, out of the GTA into housing products in Hamilton that are cheaper. Uh, so it's, uh, it has been a great market in Hamilton for the last few years. How much of this, Suzanne, is the fact that the market's hot and, and people are coming from outside to purchase? Or is it uh, just the fact that Hamilton had been depressed for so long and behind everybody, it's now just finally catching up? I would say it's a combination of both, Scott. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, I, I mean, the market's, the market's hot, but there's, there's reasons behind that. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, we have uh, growth plan numbers for the province that say how many people are going to move to different areas. Uh, Hamilton is a urban growth center in that uh, in that plan, and there's a, a ton of new people who are expected to move here between now and uh, 2041. So this is really part of that. But it, so it's that, and it's just the price of housing. I mean, people can afford something in Hamilton that they maybe couldn't afford in Mississauga or Brampton. So it's that. Uh, but you know, people are seeing that Hamilton can be a a really great place to live. It's got a lot to offer, too. Uh, you know, there was a lot of time when people were saying that everyone was leaving, especially young people. Uh, instead, we're seeing the opposite and lots of millennials uh, moving. Is there a certain age demographic with which which Hamilton appeals to? Is it mostly younger? Is it middle age? Is it older? Or is it a mix of everything? I would say it's a mix of everything. But, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of the demand in Hamilton is still for that uh, single-family home because uh, as I mentioned, it, it, that isn't, uh, you know, like an entry level, a new family looking to get into that single family home. Um, you know, they, they can't say afford uh, Burlington or Oakville, whereas they go to Hamilton and it's, and it's just that much cheaper. Uh, but, you know, Hamilton's downtown. It's got a cool vibe. So, there's, you know, there's a lot of building activity down there. And that tends to, um, you know, draw a, a, younger, a younger crowd. Uh, but there's lots of different uh, housing choices out there, and so you know it, 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 it's desirable by lots of different demographics. Uh, what about upper city versus lower? Is one still more in demand than the other? Um, 
Yes, I would say that, uh, you know, there's, there's a market for both. Mm-hmm. There is a market for both, uh, but, you know, the, uh, the greenfield areas are desirable by a certain group of people. There will always be a group of people who are desirous of that urban lifestyle, downtown, walkability, uh, but it's not for everybody. It's really about what, how you choose to live, right? Uh, and, I mean, the options in new home construction downtown are, you know, they're mid-rise. Uh, we've got a lot of different uh, options there with uh, the implementation of uh, six-story wood uh, a year and a half ago. So, you know, you'll see a lot more of that mid-rise coming in the future, high-rise. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the mountain, Ancaster, Waterdown, that's where you see a lot of that combination of single-family homes, townhouses, mid-rise. Uh, there was an interesting article, article in the spec yesterday uh, talking about where the kids have gone in Hamilton, and it's kind of ironic con- considering that the, their mantra is the best place to raise a child. Um, how, how are urban developments uh, reacting to that? How are, are urban developments reacting to families? You know, is it still largely, um, you know, young urban professionals that are living in downtown areas, or are we seeing families move back into downtown cores? Uh, I think you see families moving back into downtown cores. I mean, I, I'm a great example. I've bought uh, uh, in, a, in a new building in a downtown situation for my daughter and I to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just, that, that's my choice. Um, but, uh, so there are more and more families. The, uh, you know, so, and there's a lot of different options being built for people like that. And actually the province with their legislation is really pushing for that too, uh, by limiting what, uh, what, what we can do in the, uh, in the green, uh, the green fields that are that are left to be developed, right? They're they're pushing for that too. What do you hear from people outside coming into Hamilton? Uh, obviously, the price is attractive, but are they? Is Hamilton getting a better shake now than it did maybe in the past decades? Well, there's there's a combination of things. As other cities further to the east are built out, uh, people look. And now I'm talking about developers, not home mm-hmm. buyers. They look more to Hamilton as a place to invest or to do business. Just simply because um, the GTA is out of room or just out of spots, out of places well, to go. It's all coming around the corner. Is that land prices, land prices in Hamilton, while they have skyrocketed relative to places in the GTA, it's still relatively affordable. Uh, the the home buyer might not necessarily think that when they look at the price of houses in Hamilton compared to five years ago, ten years ago, yeah. but. Uh, relative to our neighbors to the east, absolutely, uh, it's it's still uh, it's still a viable option for for people who have done business east of us. And do you think this is something that's temporary, or do you think this is an ongoing trend? Where do you see Hamilton in the next five to ten years? I see it as an ongoing trend. I you know the provincial legislation that keeps getting put in place, it really will push. Um, it will limit the supply of certain types of of housing units. And so the demand for that unit won't change. Just because you change the supply of something doesn't change what people want. So uh, certainly for uh, ground-related housing, that demand will never, not not never, will not be shrinking in the short term. So that will always be high. But as uh, something, say, like the LRT comes to Hamilton, 
it'll really continue that demand uh, for different uh, downtown urban types of things. So I don't see it slowing down anytime soon at all. Biggest challenge for the first time home buyer, young people just getting into it? Just actually affording it. Yeah. The reality is, is people will drive until they can afford what it is they want. Yeah. Or they will have to choose a different type of housing product. And that's actually what the uh, the lady in the story said yesterday, right? She said, oh, well, it looks like I'm going to have to raise a family in a one-bedroom apartment because that's what I can afford. Mm-hmm. And I see that that will happen more and more to people because they've got X number of dollars and the pricing of houses and what they can afford, uh, their income isn't increasing to the same level as the price of their housing choices are. Uh, you know, we, we, we see interest rates continual, to continually stay low. We see prices going up. For years, boy, uh, at least the last 10 years, Suzanne, we've talked about a bubble. How do you react to that? Um, you know, it's, I don't see it as a bubble. I see it as the new reality. Uh, you know, um, you look at Toronto or Vancouver as examples, and, um, you know, people say, oh, how can people afford it? How can people afford it? And it still continues to happen because the reality is, is it's expensive to buy something. The, the input prices are huge. The taxes on, uh, on these things are huge. Everybody needs their, 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 their piece of it. And so the price of, uh, the price of housing for the home buyer goes up and, and it just is what it is. It's, it's, it's a tough, tough nut to crack. Do you think that people in Southern Ontario realize how uh, vibrant this market is? I mean, you look at cities like you talked about Vancouver or Toronto, uh, they're now looked at as world-class cities. I mean, if a lot of us were going to pack up and move to New York City, we'd say, oh my goodness, we'd never be able to afford New York City because we hear the same sorts of things. Uh, have we just got to the point in Canada where now we have these big cities and you know it, it's going to get to the point where people have to realize that uh, not everybody can afford to live in a New York City or, or wherever, wherever and, and the same thing for the larger centers here. Yeah, I, I think that is the reality. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the population growth that uh, will come to the province and is included in the growth plan is uh, through people immigrating to the country. And the reality is, is they land in major city centers like yeah. Toronto and Vancouver. And so the their understanding of what lies outside of the boundaries of those cities comes into a factor. Uh, often they'll have family or friends who live there. So they, they tend to want to stay close to those those cities. Uh, so, you know, I I think it, it's just, it's part of our new reality. I mean, a CMHC report from a month or so ago, while I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, it ranked Hamilton with uh, Vancouver and Toronto in mm. terms of market hotness. Yeah. Uh, so you're not concerned that July figures for building uh, permits are down? When does the market heat up? When is the most active time in real estate from a residential perspective? Uh, first thing in the spring and first thing after school. Suzanne Mammel has been with us, Executive Officer with the Hamilton Halton Home Builders Association, talking about the market in the Hamilton and Burlington area and uh, whether it's heating up or cooling off, it certainly shows no signs of slowing down. Thank you very much for the time, Suzanne. Much appreciated. You're very, very welcome. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.